Hi, and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, and today another terrific episode with uh, someone you know, not necessarily from the writing world, uh, but has uh, just done her first book. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more of this lady, judging by how good a book this one is to read. It is Heather Mitchell. A book is called Everything and Nothing. It is her memoir, or at least the start of uh, the story of her life. There's a heck of a lot she hasn't covered in this that she will, I'm sure, in other books. But uh, this new one from Alan and Unwin is called Everything and Nothing. We'll talk to her about uh, this book, and it is a beauty. Very shortly, but a reminder about our podcast partners, CSCG. Now, they're the people to talk to about uh, your financial goals. Now, it's that time of the year where we start thinking about uh, tax. We should be thinking about tax 365 days a year, I'm told, but we tend to leave it until the month of June and then go into a mad panic. Uh, but if you need a new voice, a new set of ears to talk to about uh, your financial goals, if you're not happy with where you are or you, you've got an idea of where you want to be but you're not quite sure, uh, CSCG are the people to talk to. They're terrific. They've got all the fields covered from superannuation through insurance, through lending, through whatever it is. If it has anything to do with your financial picture, they can help you out. Give them a call. The telephone number is 9974-8333. Jump on their website, cscg.com.au. You'll not be disappointed. They are terrific people who know what they're doing and they'll help you out with your financial situation. Let's talk to Heather Mitchell. What a fascinating lady. What a great talent. Uh, I'm, I'm such a fan of her acting work uh, in uh, in series like uh, Upright, in Love Me, uh, in films like uh, Muriel's Wedding. Uh, she's been around for a long time, but uh, she is a very talented actor. And uh, as we're finding out uh, with this book that she's done, Everything and Nothing, a very talented writer as well. The idea of this book was not, it was foisted upon you rather than one that you went, I know what I'll do today, I'll write a book. Yes, it was invited rather than foisted. It was invi- I was invited. Look, I love any challenge and I love a deadline. Um, I would never have written a book also because I would have just rambled on and on and on. It was wonderful that I had little deadlines. He said, get it to me by, you've got two weeks or a week to write it. So um, that was wonderful. And look, it's a surprise. It's such a surprise to me that there's a book. Put it that way. It's just an absolute surprise to me. So did it flow easily for you? Was it something that was was a difficult task? Was it something that you sat down every morning and went, okay, I'm going to do this now? Yeah. I just sat down. My husband is doing a writing course online and uh, he's in his third year of it and he's writing a novel. So we'd sit, we found a little rose, rosewood table, a little foldable table that someone had left on the street. So we put that under the bedroom window, put a chair on each side and we both sat there each day sort of challenging each other and he'd write his um, 10,000 words and I'd write mine and then we'd go for the walk and go and do our work or do whatever else we were doing. So, yeah, I wrote uh, not every day, but I'd write a bit each day. But, no, it just flowed out easily because I talk in the book about, I think in the opening, about how I used to collect snow domes. Yeah. So the way I deal with experiences in the past is I sort of put them in little captions, in little snow domes and label them. And so those are my memories. So I'd just pick out a snow dome each day and say, oh, this is the one about my mother, this is the one about my aunt, and just go, blah. Are they memories like little movies? Because reading the book, it's like being in a little movie with you. Yeah, I suppose they are. They're very contained, like a snow dome is. They're very I've visual. Not- I, I found it really visual. I mean, you you walking out of your house and walking across the street, and I think it was Michael was sitting on, on the brick fence. Yeah. 
Uh, all, yeah, I can uh, see it. See it. I suppose it is like a little movie, yeah, in my head. And what's interesting, I think when those experiences were happening, I was very selective about where my attention was. So I don't see the other things. I only see those things. So, you know, in any image there's, or in any memory, there are a million ways you could interpret that memory or um, different things that could encroach on that memory. But I realise in writing them that I had very specific uh, memories of things. I can um, imagine that, you know, looking out the window and seeing your mother being put into the back of an ambulance would be something that would, would stay with you. It's one of those ones that would stay with you. How was that emotionally for you as you were taking yourself through those things? Look, that was the most galvanising moment. It was, uh, I can remember it now very vividly um, because um, in the book I describe how I experienced my first orgasm, fully clothed with my tights on and everything. <laughs> yes. Um, when I was 17 and stood up from that and saw my mother being wheeled into an ambulance. And so it was a rush. I was already had this rush through my body. So it was one of the most intense experiences I think I've ever had in my life. Um, and I was, it was a mix of terror, excitement, um, all in one. And, and, and if anything, I wanted it was a mixture of want. It was like wanting the world to stop. I remember thinking everything has to stop right now. Stop. I wanted to stop it. Stop everything from happening. And uh, my only way of dealing with that, I think, I, I'm sure that your um, adrenals get to a point where it goes into survival mode. Yeah. So I had to either run or freeze, and I ran. So um, I found myself propelled to run to where my mother was, and um, yeah. So that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously as those emotions start playing out, was that difficult for you to tap into and, and let let it go? Do you know what I mean, to sort of let it out there? No, because I feel I'm 66 now. That happened when I was 17. It's yeah. not a – it's not um, – I can remember it all and I can even feel it all, but none of it's negative and none of it was cathartic. I didn't find writing the book cathartic. It wasn't a – wasn't a therapeutic experience. I didn't need to deal with anything in writing it. It was really just shaking the snow dome, letting it fall, putting it out there. Was it yeah. fun to write? Did you enjoy the experience? I enjoyed it very much. I, I wish now I'd gone back and I found after I wrote them I didn't want to go back and read over them. I wish I had now because I would have changed things probably. Yeah. I would have at least changed some of the structure. I would have made the stories a bit clearer. Um, maybe change some of the intention. But once I wrote them, um, that was it. I left it to Malcolm to tell me whether I needed to change anything. Now, Malcolm was the man who uh, who kind of uh, instigated the process. Yeah. Malcolm Knox. And I'm not close friends of Malcolm or anything. I knew Malcolm from many years ago when we were, we all lived in Potts Point together and we knew each other, you know, socially at times. So it was a complete surprise to me when he said, would you like to meet for a coffee? And I thought, sure, not knowing what it was about. And he just said, look, I'm, I'm, you know, thinking of inviting some people who I think might be good at writing. Why don't you give it a go? I think you might have an interesting story within you. So it was just a beautiful invitation. And it made me think how lovely that is and how lovely it would be to do that for each other more, even to say to friends, why don't you write something, you know, and send it to me and I'll read it and I'll start collecting your stories. And, I mean, that's what I think a lot of people are doing. I know a lot of businesses have, have started now and I have a few friends doing it. 
um, when people are at end of life. Yes. Um, helping them write their stories for their families or for themselves. And just the whole idea of encouraging and helping people, not helping even, just encouraging them to write. I heard the other day of a business that has started that is writing, is helping people write their own obituaries, which I'm, I was a bit sort of went, oh, okay, I can see how that works. But then also I thought, oh, that's kind of a bit freaky. <laughs> oh, but my mother used to love reading the obituaries. She used to sit every morning and we'd giggle over some of them and, um, yeah, we used to read them all. Was it nice to sit down and think about uh, think about your mum and think about those those early days growing up in your childhood and, and, and reliving that through through writing it down? Oh, very much, very much. I had, a, I mean, I was blessed with a wonderful family. I was absolutely knew I was loved. I, and if anything, what's really clear to me in writing it, I think one of the most important thing that I've gleaned from writing it is how fortunate, how important it is to know that someone loves you. And it's not even just knowing, you know, it's not enough for someone just to say, I love you, for you to feel it. It's about knowing that you're loved. So um, you can't make someone know they're loved. They need to know that they're loved. So I knew I was loved. And I think as a parent, I hope my children know they're loved and it won't happen by me telling them that I love them. I hope my actions have shown them that I love them. And I think, if anything, that's the thing that, and I think one of the most important things for me thinking about my aunts and my mother was the time they gave me, undivided, undistracted time. And that's what they gave me. And that's what showed me how much they loved me and loved my company and loved my, you know, loved me. Yeah, you said it wasn't cathartic and and it wasn't therapeutic. But when when you went back through many of the the low points of of your life, um, the cancer diagnosis and things like that, was that was that difficult? If not therapeutic, was it difficult? No, I'm sorry, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. No, because I'm well. I think it'd be difficult if I was not well. Yeah. By this this latest cancer that I got, this reoccurrence, if I hadn't had such brilliant doctors as I have, and if I hadn't had a good um, outcome, then, yes, it would be a different story I'm telling. But because I have, they are just stories from my past. They haven't had um, detrimental effects on me because I was surrounded by people who cared, you know. Yeah. Your positivity as a human being obviously factors into that as well, I would have thought. Yeah, and I think that positivity, I think part of that, I think, look, I don't know, but I think we're all born with a personality or something in there that's not a genetic makeup or whatever. But, you know, some people are possibly born with a um, uh, just a, a personality that allows that more readily. And then, of course, it's the experiences you have in your life. Um, and I would say that I pos- possibly was born with a buoyant personality. Yeah. And that because that was met um, and with loving parents and loving family. And so then when adverse experiences happened, I knew I was safe deep down. I was safe. And I had an experience I talk about in the book when I was six years old falling off off a fence and winding myself and having trouble breathing and thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and terrible panic, which was followed by this feeling of it's okay because, and I hate to use the word, I hope people don't misunderstand this word, but as a six-year-old thought, I'm perfect. 
and I mean I'm perfect as I'm six years old and I can't be expected to know or feel or do more than a six-year-old can do. And somehow that thought released me and I got breath back into my lungs. But it was an acknowledgement and it was, I use the word epiphany because it was just this realisation that no one could make me or expect me to be more than I am. Mm. And I think that has always stayed with me and that is what. That's a big, that's a big call as a six-year-old when you think about it, isn't it? Well, it's a simple thought, but it was a very profound thought at that age for me because I thought I'm safe. No one can tell me I'm not who I am, even though people do try to all your life (laughs) and try to question who you are and you question who you are and you have self-doubt. Of course, I've had self-doubts and I can self-criticise like anyone else, but deep down I know that I'm safe. Yeah. The core of me is safe. As an actor, that must be a difficult place to be in sometimes too, because acting is 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 a tight wire sometimes, uh, you know, of, of emotions and of uh, of even even putting bread on the table and you know surviving. Absolutely. Um, in fact, just this period now, there's a um, with the American writers' strike, um, a lot of projects might be put off. The projects that would be coming here. Um, and it also affects some of Australians and crews. And so it's a very tenuous lifestyle. Yeah. And it always has been thus. And um, we certainly, uh, you know, probably money we earn is probably below what a lot of wage earners even earn. But um, we're doing what we love doing and something always comes up. It always comes up. And uh, we wouldn't have lasted this long if it didn't. So I think many people, it is far too hard to stay in this industry. Um, And so, but we all have to do other jobs as well. Like, you know, I think most actors, most crew members, most people, writers, everyone are doing, you know, off sometimes doing other jobs as well. It's not relevant to the book in a way, but uh, television, film, stage, do you have one that you love more than... Look, I would say the rehearsal room of a theatre is where I'm most at home. I love rehearsing. I love live theatre because it is, um, you've got this definitive period of four weeks usually, four to five weeks where you have to get a play on from the beginning to the end and then you've got that pressure of tech week and then you've got the audience. And it's there's such a wonderful comfort in that, like a wonderful knowing that's your plan and that's where it's got to get to and there's a pressure And there's nothing like working with a group of people. I find nothing out what a script about, doing what the director wants you to do. You know, it's it's such a wonderful, I just love it so much. I never tire of it. Um, I love performing as well. Um, But I do find that creative process in rehearsal room wonderful. In film and television, you rarely, most of the things I've done recently, you don't even have a rehearsal. There are no rehearsals anymore. And so sometimes you might have a Zoom rehearsal. You might just have one conversation with the director, but some jobs you don't even get the conversation with the director. So you literally turn up, do your thing. But that has other wonderful things that happen because then you're walking onto a set with a crew, with a a set already designed for you or a location with the props people already have made decisions about the props and and you have to, it's about adaptation. So walking onto a film set or or a TV set is about adaptation, thinking quickly, working with people instantaneously, um, making quick decisions, 
And so that's really exciting as well. And then, of course, with film and television, you might work hard and intensively, but then it's over and it gets shown over and over and over, unlike theatre where you have to turn up eight shows a week and do it and do it and do it. So they both offer very different um, exciting challenges, yeah. Yeah. You detail in the book a few uh, experiences in the in the theatre and that weren't pleasant. That seems to be, a, you know, something that we're dealing with constantly now in a more public area than that. What's your feelings on that? Look, it was interesting when the Me Too movement first originated and it was such a, a huge worldwide um, expression of people's anger, frustration, um, real anger. And it was a, I, I went through big realizations that I had minimized experiences that I'd had and just thought of them as rather sad, unfortunate experiences. Fortunately, in none of those experiences had I been physically injured. Mm. Um, they were shocking to me and frightened me at times. And I knew they were wrong and I lost trust in both people, some people. But what was, really important to me, which is why it's taken me a little bit of time to um, talk about it, I suppose, was I was trying to formulate what it was that it meant to me. And because I wasn't angry, I wasn't wanting to blame anyone else. I was trying to understand my reaction to it. And my reaction to it was that I had self-silenced and I'd self-silenced because I didn't want other people to get hurt. I didn't want to upset people. I didn't want the attention. I didn't want to be categorised as, um, because I know there's no one point of view to anything, I didn't want the spotlight on me saying, well, why were you in that situation? Why were you put there? Which is what happens to most, not just women, but victims of any sort of assault or abuse. But I was also very aware that I was okay so I, that's why I minimised it because I would say, well, I'm okay. I got away. I'm all right. I'll just keep going. And then realise that's probably not a good thing because you're really looking after yourself, but that person might be also doing it to someone else. Yeah. I think that was my main reason for wanting to talk about it now as well, but also to say times have really, really changed and wanting to show the positives steps that have been taken because back in the 80s and 90s it was a very very different time yeah. and now we have in place certainly in the theater and on film sets we have not only are there counselors there's wellness you know things set up we have intimacy coordinators we have you know avenues for people to speak out i still don't think we have sorted out how these things can be dealt with courts certainly don't seem to um, be able to deal with it um, because in the end it does come back to the he said, she said, or she said, she said, or they said, they said. Yeah. You know, it's uh, because we tend to deal with evidence and truth, you know, so it's difficult. But I think that everyone should be allowed to discuss it the way they need to discuss it and there is no one conversation to be had. Basically the bottom line is we need to treat each other with great respect. Yeah. Bottom line is no one deserves, no one deserves to be abused or to, and anyone who feels they've lost trust in another human being, particularly someone who's a, someone close to them, must be horrendous. I fortunately have never, you know, I may have had um, people I knew who were friends, but no one I was 
emotionally very close to, which must be utterly devastating for someone. Yeah, yeah, it must be, absolutely. When people walk into a bookshop and pick this book up, what do you want them to think before they walk down to the counter and buy it? What do you you want them to know? Well, I want them to think I want 20 of them. No, I want (laughs) (laughs) want... (laughs) One's not enough. You need two dozen. (laughs) Um, What do I want them to think? Well, look, I think they've made a beautiful cover. I think I want them to to be attracted to the cover and think, oh, what's that? The title, Everything and Nothing, a girlfriend actually, Joanne came up with that title. She had she read the book for me and said, and I was having really having trouble thinking of a title. And she said, Oh, I think you should call it Everything and Nothing. And I thought, well, that's perfect because it sort of firstly echoed the haiku that my mother used to recite, which was in my 10-foot bamboo hut this spring. There is nothing, there is everything. And I love those opposites. And I hope that there's just the title might make someone curious in that they're opposites and yet. In nothing is where potential lies and in everything is where things can go in a moment. So yeah. it's just a juxtaposition of, of what those words mean really to each person. I mean, it can be as simple as glass half empty, glass half full, but they're not necessarily opposites, that's all. Yeah. Everything can be very intertwined. Yeah. Has this whetted your appetite for further writing or not? Yes, it has. Ah. I've started mainly because now I'm frustrated that I didn't read back over it and should have <laughs> should have um, done it more. I feel now I feel now I would like to write more about the industry that I'm in because I really love it and there's so many I don't mention many people in the book who I've worked with who have had big impact on me because if they weren't in that story then they I didn't talk about them but I would actually love to write about more about the people in the industry who I've worked with yeah yeah. And you're doing that now or are you thinking about it? Not now, but I am thinking about it, yeah. Beautiful. Well, congratulations on this book. Very honest, very open, very you. Thank you so much. It's but, been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, good luck and uh, health and happiness to you, Heather. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Heather Mitchell and a lovely chat that was and a delight to actually uh, meet her and uh, and have a chat. Check the book out. It's called Everything and Nothing. It's out through Alan and Unwin and it is a very good read. Now, if you want to have a very good financial picture, you should talk to my friends at CSCG. They are the people to talk to. They've got it all covered no matter what it is, uh, whichever part of your financial situation you're not happy with, they can sit down, talk to you about it and uh, I'm sure you'll come up with a solution that will make you happy. Double Nine seven four eight triple three. That's the number. CSCG.com.au. That is uh, this edition of the Authorised Podcast with Heather Mitchell. Hope you enjoyed it. There's plenty more coming, and plenty more where you found this podcast of old episodes uh, that we've done with uh, a whole myriad of authors. So have a look around and see. Uh, I'm sure you'll find something there that you'll like as well. Till the next time, read a book. It's good for you. It's therapeutic. It's uh, it makes you feel good, and it does while away these uh, very chilly wintry nights. <laughs> Enjoy. Mm-hmm.